we'd done well. We'd, we'd gone from taking them from $600,000 a year to $650 million a year and wow. ushered them through their IPO. But it's one of the weirdest accounts that I've ever had because really? I never shot a single GoPro spot in my life. Yeah. Every other commercial that I have, I've shot, I've directed, I've written, I've produced it. But with GoPro, it was all user-generated footage. We stand today. The Business Method the business with method. a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics for location independence. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring successful entrepreneurs and high-profile people dissecting their business models. We dissect the different methods, tools, and tactics of high-performance online entrepreneurs and high-caliber people in a series format. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs in 100 days that have built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built location-independent businesses that produce over a million dollars and annual revenue and now we're interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business and influence income results economies and cultures there's a growing number of people building these caliber of businesses like this and we're going to figure out what it takes to make this happen now Let's jump in today's show. The Business Method. Listeners, welcome back to the show, and we are launching our very first episode of the 100 Major Influencer Series, and we do have a very special treat for you. Ron Lynch is the marketing genius that helped take GoPro from 600,000 to over 600 million by using video techniques to engage, enroll, and sell. Ron chats with us and shares about some of his favorite video marketing tips on how Hollywood played a major role on helping Ron get a start, some fundamental points successful video marketing videos need, and how to manage business and life as a major influencer. You guys check out this episode, and without further ado, let's welcome Ron Lynch to the show. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Listeners, I'm incredibly excited and happy and honored to welcome our guest today. Ron Lynch is on the show. Ron, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. It's beautiful here in Austin, Texas today. Excellent. I also want to introduce our part-time co-host of the show, a good friend and former guest of the show, Noah Leith. Noah, how are you today? How are you, my friend? I'm very well. I'm here in St. Petersburg, Russia. It is amazing that we can all sit here with our laptops, and I can sit here in Austin. You can be in Thailand, and he can be in St. Petersburg, Russia. We can have a crystal clear call between three right. people. It's, right. Holy smokes. So our guest today, Ron, has done some amazing things in the world of entrepreneurship and viral video marketing. And Noah and I met him at one of the best conferences I've ever attended in Croatia this past summer. Ron, your presentation was one of my favorites. I really, really, really enjoyed it, and especially because you had an outlook on philosophy and being a good human while doing these amazing things as an entrepreneur at the same time. And I know you're down in Texas and you're living in Austin, so I'm just curious, out of all the places in the world, how come you choose to live in Austin now? You know, I love Austin. Uh, first of all, I grew up in Seattle, and, and I have a great appreciation for Seattle, and I still have an office there. But uh, the the 300 days of gray got to be a bit much, and I didn't <laughs> realize how gray it was until I ha actually stayed in a hotel once in Seattle and watched the Travel Channel while I was a guest there. And they said, Seattle has over 60 days of sunshine a year. I thought, my God, i got to get out of here. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> just the just the the weather alone is uh, a big boost just to how you feel on a day to day basis. A little more sunshine, and I know there's an incredible entrepreneur vibe in Austin these days. But I haven't been there in something like 13 years. I don't know, Noah. Have you been to Austin anytime soon? No, but they they call it like the the new Silicon Valley. Yeah, is it really like that, Ron? Yeah, there's there are you can't swing a cat without hitting five entrepreneurs down here. It is an amazing <laughs> environment down here. There there's uh, thousands upon thousands, and it's it's very inspiring. It's very fun. I get to coach a lot of people, and I get to learn a lot from people uh, here in this environment. And there's there's lots of tech here. Um, it has the advantage of being having a rel relatively low cost of living uh, still, and you're in a central time zone, so you're a two-hour flight or three-hour flight from pretty much any place in the United States, and you're only off by an hour on phone calls, you know, going west or east pretty much. So it's, there's some real advantages to being here. 
Yeah, that's much easier than being in a time zone that's 12 hours off in Thailand for sure. So we want to get to know you. And of course, we want to talk about your experience at GoPro. I don't know too much about you outside of that. And I but I do know that you've launched somewhere around 300 companies and accredited somewhere something like $4 billion in sales collectively, which blows my mind. I'd like to give you the mic for just a couple of minutes, Ron, so you can share with the listeners and understand how you got your start. Sure. Um, w- when I was a kid, I did about every odd job you could for cash. Uh, when I was in junior high school, I uh, mm-hmm. worked for a plumber doing painting. I worked at a, a restaurant. Uh, I did all kinds of manual labor. If you needed to lift rocks or paint with a paintbrush to make money, I did it. Um, And I was one of the few kids that always had a stack of 20s in his wallet that I'd hard earned when I was in the ninth grade before I was even of legal age to work. And I I liked the uh, autonomy and the self-control of just having income. Uh, And I learned that at a young age. My parents made me real self-reliant. And when I uh, graduated from high school. I went on to the University of Washington and paid my way through school. And in the midst of going to school, I was, uh, I had my visions on becoming a trial attorney and I took an acting class, uh, for, with the intent of learning how to speak publicly and in trial and was pretty good at it. And one of my roommates in college got an audition for a feature film. And he said, Hey, why don't you come along? So my senior year of college, I went to this audition for uh, a movie that Robert Altman, who directed the player and mash in Nashville was directing up in the Seattle area. And I ended up landing a role in this film, which got me a SAG card. And that was great. And it was fun. But after a couple of days on set, I realized that I'd didn't have the tolerance to be an actor because there's a lot of sitting around and waiting, but I was fascinated by the movie making process. So I asked to stay on as a PA for five weeks and they allowed me to. And so I got to learn how to make movies from one of the greatest movie makers. Um, and, you know, Altman was a protege of um, Alfred Hitchcock, as was Steven Spielberg. And Uh, learned how to make movies. And that SAG card in Seattle in the late 1980s was real valuable because there was a whole series of films being made in Seattle at that point because of the the way that unions worked in California. It was cheaper to do it in Seattle. And so I managed to make about a dozen movies as an actor in Seattle and stay on every single time as a crew member and learn the filmmaking process. At the same time, my day job that I was paying my way through college was being a grocery checker. And so I was working in a grocery store and learning how to make movies. And when college ended and the, that the movie business kind of ended for me, um, I decided to, to kind of get out of that. Uh, my, one of my last movies was with River Phoenix and it was called Dogfight. And so I experienced uh, his death and I thought, you know, this is, not, this is not the side of this business I wanna be in. I got serious about the grocery business and in about four or five years, I ended up being a director in that business and I was running operations inside of grocery stores and doing turnarounds in some grocery stores and understanding P&Ls. So I had a, a pretty strong business background and a pretty strong movie making background. And I, the opportunity arose when the George Foreman grill was being created. The uh, advertising agency that was doing that business was in Seattle and they were leasing space for me in one of my grocery stores to shoot segments at nighttime of people doing man on the street taste tests of product from the George Foreman Grill. And I met Sam Perlmutter, who is George Foreman's agent, and I handed him a screenplay that I'd written and he optioned it. And that led to me getting a job at that agency. And I started writing infomercials. And the first infomercials that I wrote were short form commercials for Space Bag, uh, which is a bag you put your clothes in and you crush it, crush the air out, you flatten them and you put them in your suitcase. I remember you tra- that. Yeah. Travel. Space saving bag with American Tourister and Samsonite. And then the next one I wrote was a long form, a half hour show for a food processor called The Ultimate Chopper, which I think ultimately sold like about 84 five or a hundred million dollars worth of product in a really relatively short time. And the second show I did was for a product with Kevin Harrington called the flavor wave deluxe oven, which ran for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So I, 
I uh, ended up in the uh, infomercial business, uh, kind of surreptitiously, and I love it. I've been doing it for since I actually transitioned into this career a week after 9-11. So I've been doing it that long or that short, however you prefer to look at that. <laughs> and it's been really fascinating. I've worked on over 300 different products and 70 different brands. That is absolutely incredible. And I love the idea and the story that you kind of, uh, it sounds like you just fell into this area of business naturally. Is that true? I, I did. In fact, the, the first time I wrote a script uh, and it took off really, they utilized it. Even the people that I was working for were kind of like, wow, how did you, how did you know how to do that? And I, I'm not sure that I ever knew how to do it. I just think that probably the same way Quentin Tarantino knew how to make movies. Yeah. I'd been watching this content for so long. I'd been watching filmmaking and I was a screenwriter. I'd written 12 or 13 screenplays. Didn't sell all of those, by the way, but I, you know, I'd written. So I knew how to write. Um, and, and I do. I think I just had a natural aptitude for it. And if you think about it, it really is, goes back to the trial attorney thing. Is the, the audience is your jury. And you're proving a case to them. So you tell them what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them what you tell them. And then you tell them what you told them. So it's very much a, it's very much a trial process uh, at, when, at, when direct response advertising is executed correctly. These days you're running a big baby agency and that's your primary business to continue to launch brands and products, correct? It's one of my businesses. I, I have a, three businesses primarily one is big baby agency which is client focused so i've you know i've launched the samsung powerbot vacuum cleaner for samsung i have upcoming products that are always under confidentiality agreements that i can't talk about in the next year but i can look and say that i'm doing two or three large projects here in the next 12 months and then my second company is called bonfire enterprises and bonfire is uh, an accelerator and incubator for other people's products so if there's a marketer out there that has a successful product that they don't know how to scale or they're unskilled in certain areas, but they believe it has mass appeal. Um, we'll take a look at those products. And we uh, typically, if it's something we really are excited about, we'll invest in that and create content for it and kind of take over the marketing uh, as long as they can handle the manufacturer. So that's a, that's a kind of a second company and it's, it's, it's kind of an accelerator. It's kind of a holding company. And the third company is the, the marketing mercenary where I teach young men and women how to ethically market. And that's a, that's a kind of a private coaching company that's uh, limited in scope and size based upon my time. I definitely want to talk about that a little more later in the show, but um, Noah, did you get a chance to see Ron speak when we were in Croatia? Unfortunately not. That's why I was uh, very curious uh, to be here because I think at the same time that you were speaking, I was speaking also. One thing that stood out, Ron, was the four elements that you used to create successful viral videos for marketing. And I thought it was really interesting how you walked us through this process where I think it was um, a Ghostbuster example where you put the idea of what is happening in Ghostbusters into a baby commercial and use those same sort of actions that you see in Ghostbuster. Can you dissect and describe this a little bit more for us? Sure. I think in, uh, and you see this a lot in filmmaking and good filmmaking is you, there's things that are in the, the recollection and the memory of all of us from being exposed to media over the years. And I'll give you, I'll make one up right now as we're talking. We, we've all seen this utilized many, many times, but think it originated for us in The Wizard of Oz when the house lands in black and white and Dorothy opens the door and she steps into the color world. That, yeah. that, premise, that, that premise and that transition is something we're all very, very familiar with. And that's something that can be utilized and tapped into um, in advertising. It's those kind of ideas is taking something that's an iconic memory for us and transferring it. The, the piece that you're speaking about was uh, it, an idea. It was, it's a commercial that we did for Samsung around a vacuum cleaner. It's a 60-second commercial. And the commercial starts uh, at a very low angle of a baby walking through the front hall of a house. And it starts the, with, it, with its feet, and, and then it cuts up to the baby's head. And it, there's these jump cuts of around the periphery of the baby. And what we're setting up in that 
sounds like, you know, you use a baby in a commercial, you think cute, and there's a puppy in it as well. And you think, oh, that's cute. But if you were to strip the soundtrack out of this commercial, you'd realize actually what we've created is a horror film about a baby <laughs> being alone and creating mess. And there's sharp objects and there's, you know, with a different soundtrack, this should be a scary piece, but we have light fluffy music in it. So it feels like a light piece and uh, we show it to people in classes and let them review the, the spot and then ask them if there's anything that they iconically remember about the spot, if they can relate it to any films. And it was, it was shot for shot designed after a film that we've all seen, which is Ghostbusters when the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man uh, comes and attacks New York City. And we just duplicated the shot sequence of that because we knew it would be in everybody's mind and it would immediately build kind of a funny tension. And then the tension's relieved at the end of the commercial. But, um, the, and the way the tension's relieved is we, we you know, introduce the product and the product takes care of all of the problems and mitigates the risk that the baby would be, be in. But in no place in the commercial is there ever a, is there a grown person. There's no mom. There's no grandma. There's no adult. And we are signaling to that female customer who is we know is between 30 and 60 years old that this product will take care of the risk and danger and do the nurturing while you're not paying attention. And anybody who's had a small child knows you turn around and your kids can do just about anything. How do you understand the psychology of that? To dissect in such a way, in such a descriptive level, sounds incredibly impressive for me. I know I would probably never think of that watching a regular commercial. How do you understand this process? Um, I wish I could say something really sophisticated and super intelligent, but I'll tell you what it is. I, I stole it. I stole yeah. it from Ghostbusters. I steal stuff all the time. I take stuff that, that's already in the zeitgeist and I tap into it so it doesn't, it's not unfamiliar. Or I'll put a spin on it that kind of makes you have to watch. We have a viral spot that's out right now for a breath mint company. And uh, it's called Breath Rocks is the name of the business. And we, to be transparent, we own the business. But we were looking for ways to make a breath mint go viral and it was really difficult until we stumbled across this idea one day I was like uh, the everybody's biggest fear is well not biggest but it's a fear for people is getting pulled over and getting breathalyzed and I took that idea and I went well what if we invert that what if we did a commercial where the person got pulled over but they breathalyzed the police officer because they had bad breath <laughs> and <laughs> We actually had Kurt Molly, who's a good friend of mine, and his girlfriend, Christina McDonald, be the talent in this commercial. And uh, so Kurt, uh, we dress Kurt up as a cop, and he pulls Christina over, and he walks up to the car, and she's like, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to have you blow into this. And she pulls out a real device that, that exists in the real world called the breathometer, and he blows into this, and she just hands him the breath rocks and drives off. She says, I'll let you off with a warning, and she drives away. Now, the, the spot in and of itself is 15 seconds, 30 seconds. It's enough to embed a Facebook pixel and get somebody kind of on the sales path, so to speak. It's very top funnel. But at the same time, the font that we're allowed to use, if you can imagine how well, how clickable the font is that says woman breathalyzes cop in this day and age. Yeah, yeah. It's very, show, it's very, very disruptive, very interruptive, and, yeah. and people have to click on it. So, you know, the, the ideas that we get are, um, I guess they're creative, but I, they're, they're pretty common. I mean, I look at really simple things and go, okay, what's a really simple thing that everybody can relate to? I'm wondering, like, is there a certain formula that you go through or, like, for the creative process? It, it seems like for people, like normal people like, like me, it's so, it's so complex. It's, uh, it seems to, to have a... To almost have a system to find these ideas. Yeah, I I think that that's a fair question, and um, I utilize um, a lot of things in Triz theory. Um, and I, being in Russia, I, I, maybe you know what that is. I hope you do. Um, which is that there's there's only forty solutions to any problem in the world, and you can look at Triz.com or uh, look up Triz T R I Z. 
um, Leonardo da Vinci came up with the same conclusion that there's only 40 solutions to any problem in the world. Um, and the one that I use a lot is uh, turning something around. And th this is something that's very, very common that comedians do is you take two, two very disparate ideas and connect them. You take things that are uncomfortable and you, and you draw a parallel between them and connect them in a person's mind so that uh, when you do that, what you're doing is you're taking two previously stored pieces of data in a person's brain and you're connecting them. And when you make that connection a neurons fired and serotonin and dopamine and oxytocin are released and it feels good. So you see stand-up comics do this all the time and you laugh uncontrollably. And your laughter is a result of that good feeling, that chemical release you're getting in the brain. So to like summarize that, it's just, it's really just taking disparate ideas and connecting two things that are radically different. Like the idea of a horror movie with a baby or a woman breathalyzing the cop instead of the cop breathalyzing the woman. It's, it's like doing inversions of things that are familiar with me, but I've never put together. Does that make sense? It does. But if you were going to give someone that wanted to create a, a basic marketing video, someone that was fresh, what suggestions would you give them? I, I think it's either think of people that wouldn't use your product or, or would use it in a really, you know, it's, it, it engages humor. And when I got into direct response, one of the absolute steadfast rules was, was you can't use humor. And I, it's my nature. I, I, I think I'm funny, but it's my nature to, to, come, <laughs> to yeah, right. Um, too bad. My wife does. No, yeah. um, but it's, it's, uh, it's to come up with, and I'll tell you, I think that those people are dead wrong, by the way, because I think yeah. wonder and excitement and, and humor is, is a wonderful thing in marketing because there's an element that must be entertainment. Yeah. And uh, I was fortunate enough when I was first in this business to do one of my very first products that I had an ownership interest in. I, I did a, a show with Billy Mays where he wasn't in it, but he, he, I actually paid him to help me come up with ideas and write. And we sat down for two days and it was like paying someone to give you a great seminar in, in fair pitching and, and idea pitching. And Billy was so phenomenal at that. And it, it re, he really opened the door in my mind to say, to give me permission to utilize what my natural instincts were, to use humor and to use disparate ideas to sell. Yeah. So, you know, we like we, in, in, in that particular show, we had a, this was for a product called the Total Trolley, which was a hand truck that turned into a ladder that turned into a, like a luggage cart. And it, it did, it was a four in one tool. But if you can imagine a cart that turns into a ladder, that's kind of weird. And so what we did was we took the idea of that product and said, well, who would buy that? Normally you'd think, no, maybe it's a guy in a shop would buy it. We said, no, we're going to sell this to women because every woman could use this product and we're going to utilize the idea of the product to replace a man. And so we had this gal that could really do anything in her home with this device. And it was a half hour show, but some of the things where you'd go, Hey, let's get, let's, let's like show this in extreme. I would not have come up with without him, like his urging. And, and we said, Oh, it's a stepladder. It can hold a lot of weight. So we went, let's get a bear like a grizzly bear and go up this ladder. Well, we, we, we found out we could get a grizzly bear, but it was far too dangerous to have on set. So what our solution was, is we hired four performers from the Cirque du Soleil to climb up this ladder and do one of those human sculptures. Nice. Where it's like, oh, it can hold four people. But it was entertaining. You'd like, is that going to work? And, it, you know, it built tension and it was fun in the spot. So I'd, I'd encourage people to, to kind of just go to the extreme of their imagination and not settle for the mundane of what it, what it does do, but what could it do? even into an extreme of, of fantasy. I think that's something we're seeing more and more with viral marketing, especially compared to the past. People are injecting humor and the squatty potty video actually comes up for me because it's just cheesy humor and it goes viral and it sells a lot of products. And especially on social media these days, sometimes people are just being themselves with a camera phone and it proves to be a much better sales video than a high dollar creation because it includes that personal touch, that humor and that authenticity. And, uh, 
Ron, I have to say when I found out that you helped GoPro become the company that it is today, I was really excited to meet you because for years I've been watching and engaging in those and loving those videos and pretending I was the hero in those. First off, I want to say thank you because I've enjoyed those over the past few years, seven, eight years or so. And I'd like to know more about your experience with GoPro. I think you just kind of randomly got connected with them when they were still under a million dollars. How'd that magic happen? So when I got involved in GoPro, yeah, there, I think their volume was about 600,000 a year and it was entirely a ski shop and surf shop business. There was no real broad consumer uh, retail exposure to the product. And our new business development guy uh, at our company uh, stumbled across Nick Woodman at a trade show. And then he called me and he said, Hey, we got to go to this trade show. So I flew down to Salt Lake city and Nick had a, a white, I, it's actually my screensaver because it's, it just, it's just a great picture. It's this trade show booth that was his white van with every piece of sporting equipment that Nick had and a TV pulled out and he was sleeping in the van <laughs> on the trade show floor. And he had a cooler full of beer. And at two o'clock, he'd come out and he'd open the trade show, like the, the van doors and be like, here's Nick Woodman from GoPro. And he'd start throwing <laughs> beers at everybody. And that's how he'd bally the crab. It was really great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I, I said, Hey, this is a natural for TV. And we, he came up to Seattle. He brought his, his dad, uh, Nick had had a prior business that failed for millions of dollars. His dad was in the venture capital world. Nick's brother incidentally was one of the original founders of StubHub. So the family had, you know, they're pretty good, pretty good karma there. And we sat down and decided, yeah, this is going to be a great thing for TV. It took us a year to get to television. Um, and in that year, we did the strate strategic work. And I, I appreciate your flattery on the spots, but it's one of the weirdest accounts that I've ever had because really? I never shot a single GoPro spot in my life. Yeah. Every other commercial that I have, I've shot. I've directed, I've written, I've produced it. But with GoPro, it was all user-generated footage. Um, so that was, a, that was kind of an, an interesting element of that. And they had one guy in the company and the, the CFO's son was the guy that you saw in all the early commercials. And that was some of the best footage we had early on. The strategy behind the product was, you know, I was going to go out and make a half hour show out of all of this content. So I wrote the creative brief, wrote the, the strategy. Um, we got this content, this idea for a contesting strategy to get people to, to uh, come in and enter to win so we could kind of have a top funnel thing. And this was before anybody knew what a top funnel was. This is like 2007 or eight, yeah. eight, I guess, eight or nine. And we, we wrote, a half, I wrote, I sat in bed. I remember sitting home for two days. I just sat in my bed and I wrote the entire show, a 30 minute show and sent the script over to Nick. And Nick was prone to call you, like answer your phone at two in the morning, but not at two in the midday. He's a, he's a night owl. And so he called me one morning at eight o'clock and said, I read the show. I'm like, yep. I said, let's go do this. And he's like, nope, we're not doing it. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, I've decided I don't want to do a half hour show. I want to do spots. And I said, okay, let's take that 30 page script that you've got in your hand and pull it apart. And each page becomes a spot because every single page was a different sport. Oh, yeah. And so we went out, and we, we went out, I think, initially with 12 spots and 12 different sports or sports types of things and matched them to channels on TV. So you saw Nick and his race car on what used to be called the Speed Network. You'd see skiing on the skiing channel. And so we, we paired the sports fishing on the fishing channel to, to the, where the likely viewer who would see themselves in the spot. And all of the spots started the same, which is the – the logo and you know be a hero and the red button going on and then the second shot in every spot was the same which was the avatar of the human being looking into the camera because when you go back and you review your gopro footage that's the first thing you see is your face going is this damn thing on so yeah. we're hard to figure out where they were on in those days um and then you know 24 seconds of sports footage and then at the end was our cta and the cta was every day we give away a complete suite of our products go online and enter to win. So you'd go to the website and interrupt would come up on the website. You'd enter in your email address. So we'd be able to market to you 
And then you'd go to the website and you'd see how many sports it did and how many things it did. And you'd realize I'm never going to win one of these and people would purchase. <laughs> so uh, we still utilize that CTA in a variety of different marketing uh, programs today. Do you, are you still working with GoPro or, or have you guys? They don't run any TV time anymore. So we have not done, I have not worked directly with GoPro since I think 2012 or 2013 when I sold out of that agency. But at the time, we, we, we'd, we'd done well. We'd, we'd gone from, taken them from $600,000 a year to $650 million a year and wow. ushered them through their, through their uh, IPO. That's incredible. Do you, do you use some of the techniques that you learned there in, in new launches and new projects? I, I do. And um, I'll, I'll, I use them all the time. And I'll tell you, there's, there's some things that I've learned just in the last six months that sometimes you discover things and I always, I always have problems like saying I discovered something cause it was always there. It was just that I tripped over it. Right. Like Newton didn't discover gravity. It was there long before Newton. <laughs> but, uh, when the apple hits you in the head, you're like, Oh man, why didn't I think of that? And so I have a lot of those moments and it, it, I, this is probably something that will be, if you're a marketer or you're, you do video content or you do any kind of funnel content, this, this, I hope this is helpful to you. One of the things that I've, kind of stumbled across in the last six months is that the path that I take with the customer is very similar to the path I would take if I had a say 10 minute sales pitch with them, but I breadcrumb it to them or spoon feed it to them in the order that I would, because the order in which information hits the customer or the prospect is really critical like the introduction to the product and how it works. And so I go, Hey, I, I'm going to write a 10 minute infomercial. And I kind of jot down the order, my natural order of how that would flow. And then I start to break that up into smaller advertising segments and I spoon feed it on the internet to them. And I'll give you an example. I talked earlier about how we did the cop ad with breath rocks. So that, that ad is super clickable because of the salacious title and the funny content and the products only in the, in that spot for the last three or four seconds. And you don't, we don't even tell you what the product really is. You get a sense of what it is. And then at the end of it, there's an opportunity to, you know, click to the website, but the, the salacious nature of that spot allows clickability and the first embed of a Facebook pixel. Now I'm just going to talk about Facebook for a minute. This is completely, you could lay this model on top of any form of digital advertising, whether it be YouTube or Google or whatever. And, then I give them a second piece of content. So they're going to see the content in the order. I'm serving it to them in the order I want them to see it. The second piece of content I'm going to give them is an animation. The reason I give an animation second is because as children, we're learn we learned to watch cartoons and believe them. We suspend our disbelief. That transfers into our adulthood, whether we like it or not. Our brain is hardwired to accept what's happening in an, anim in an animation is more truthful than truth itself because they're showing us, it's showing it to us in an, a diagram form because they can't show it to us in reality. So they're really going to show us how it works. And our brain just doesn't even question it. So the second piece of content I give them is an animation that sets up this is how the product really works and what it is. Then the third piece of content typically is a man on the street or some kind of demonstration in the real world. So now they have verification in the third piece of content that the product is what I said it was. Then the fourth piece of content is a piece of content that allows contesting. Enter to win. Put in your email and you can get one of these. Now I've already built desire in you. And once you have desire, you cannot undesire something. And I'm going to trip into adoption. That's what everybody's looking for for their, their customer is adoption. So if I get you to, or you, you know, I can convince you or create the desire for you to take the action of entering your email to get the product. Now you've set something up in your mind as a consumer that is conflict, which is I deserve this product. I want this product. I ought to have this product, but now I don't have it. You remember when you were a kid, you entered a contest and you wanted to win. You thought you ought to win it and you'd get dis disappointed when you didn't. That, that mechanism never goes away in a human being's mind. Once they've gone through the, the, that psychological adoption process, 
the good news is if you add those first four advertisements together and I've done it correctly, my acquisition cost to now market to you is really, really low. By the time I've got your email, I've got it for a really low price and I can pull you out of the media channel if I want to and not pay to put my content in front of you. I can now deliver it to you directly for free via email for a, a lot more times. I can have a lot more interactions with you. Yeah. If, if a person doesn't sign up for that, then I have additional pieces of content that would flow just like it, you know, it might be a host piece. It might be, you know, a direct to camera, um, more man on the street, different uses, um, second and third tertiary reasons to buy the product in the, in the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth piece of content. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It sounds amazing. Actually. One of the things I really like and appreciate about you, appreciate about you. And one of the reasons I really wanted to get you on the show was that you mix values and philosophy with successful business techniques. And it seems like you hold this as a core importance to yourself. When I saw you present, you just didn't speak of successful marketing techniques, but you also talked about the importance of being a good human with entrepreneurship. And I'd just like to know, and some people gain this from childhood or good parents, some people credit to the school of hard knocks, failing so many times, but refusing to give up or give in. Could you explain those core values and the importance of mixing that with entrepreneurship and influence? Sure. I, I, I don't know how much of it's intentional and how much of it is proper programming, but you know, I, I did have a great family. I, I grew up uh, uh, inside of a, a faith community um, in, and that was kind of hardwired into us as kids. And the more I look out into the scientific world, the more I see God. So it's hard for me to not believe there's more to us than this. Um, and once you start to understand that your creator put you here fully complete, did not leave parts out of the box, you, you weren't set here to go find and make yourself complete and then functional. You actually came functional and you may have had things that um, disabled you along the way that you have to unlearn and undo and kind of stay true to the nature of you. And I think that for me, walking away from my nature and uh, really discovering my flaws and the things that came up for me when I was young. I, I was, I, you know, I explained I was an actor for a while. I wanted to be a movie star and that, that had a lot to do with vanity and what I wanted other people to think of me externally. And when I got deeper into that business, I realized how hollow that felt and Watching River Phoenix die was probably pretty pivotal in that of here was a guy who had the world by the tail, but still looked outside for um, aggrandizement. He was a, a huge movie star, but he didn't like that. He wanted to be a huge music star. And I thought, wow, this, is, this isn't who I, th this whole value structure of being built from the outside and having the world love you is, is not very useful. And then when I got into business, I got, for lack of a better word, greedy, that I really wanted money. I thought, and that's just another version of the same thing is I want the world to love me. Therefore, I'll be richer than anybody else and people will, will, will admire me. And I was a pretty good negotiator and I was lucky enough to become financially pretty well off in my early to mid 30s through the direct response business. And I'll tell you, this sounds like a humble brag, but I'll, I'll just, I'll say it and I hope it resonates for people is I've, I've been a millionaire four times, which sounds like, wow, you must think a lot of yourself to say that out loud. But if you think about what that means, it means I lost it a few times, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's you have to leave the ring. So yeah. I've been thrown out of the ring a few times on my face. Um, yeah. the, the skill set that I have is I know how to, uh, create revenue. Now that's not the best skill set in the world because if you knew, if, if you know how to do that, then you go replicate it and you can become real lazy doing that. So I'm going to say on either the, the second or the third time I was thrown out of the ring on my face, I started to go, why am I doing what I'm doing? And what, when I'm successful, what is it that's making me successful? And if you ask people 
who have not achieved kind of the financial wherewithal that they'd like to, why they would like to become rich, so to speak. And there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to become so rich and then I'm going to change the world. Right. And then I've laughed. I, 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 now I kind of sit back and I look at, um, you know, if you look at the Bill Gates, Elon Musk's, Warren Buffett's, the, the, the billionaires, you go, um, they actually went about changing the world first. Yeah. And the money followed. Yeah. So giving, giving something of integrity and value to the world, it, it starts with giving, not taking from the world, but providing to the world. You were put here very well equipped to do something. And you just need to find out what that thing is. And people say, oh, it's your passion. Follow your, I don't really believe in that. I don't think following your passion. Um, you can get real passionate about drinking beer. Probably not the way to get to the top. You know, people get passionate about a lot of things that, yeah, that's not, that's not where you need to be. Your, your passion isn't that important, I don't think, as it is what you're talented at and what you do that's giving to the world go get good at that thing that you were talented for. And then the rest will follow. Get a passion for that. What would you define Ron as your talent that you're giving to the world? I have an ability to be um, an early identifier. I can see things that are useful. Um, Kind of like the world's kind of like a, a bazaar to me and I'm walking through this bazaar and I'm finding objects and things and I'm like, oh, the, you know, 90% of them are useless to humanity. But the 99th thing that I pick up, I go, oh, this is useful. This solves a real problem for a real purpose for a real person. And that is, that's always, I have four things that I look for uh, in, a, in any project that I get involved in. And that's the first thing is, is innovation. I'm really good at spotting innovation. Along this line of values and virtue, I'd love to ask your perspective about the way that media and marketing are affecting reality and especially in the situation influence that they have with the U.S. and the world today. What are your thoughts on the balance of values versus using that media and marketing just for ratings and affecting political situations? It's funny. It's, I think of the United States, um, I used to think of Los Angeles as a very big high school. Yeah. And I think that that high school is bleeding out across the United States. Yeah. And I, I, I don't, you know, I don't really want to point particular fingers at particular individuals, but I think that you can grasp that concept quite easily that there's cool kids and not cool kids and angry kids in this club and that club. And everybody's vying for attention. Um, they're not necessarily vying for the success or the greater good. They're, they're vying for, their own personal 15 minutes and their celebrity and their importance. And it goes back to this, what I said in the last segment that it's that I see people chasing to get to climb themselves to the top of a ladder. And if they'd ever experienced the top of that ladder, they would go, this is a useless climb. Mm. Um, but we celebrate that climb. And part of the construct that we're currently living under is division. And even fragmentation beyond division. And culturally, I'm very concerned for us as, as a society um, in, and because I think it's some of it's, it's kind of conspiracy theorists talk, but I think that some of it's really by design. I think that, that there are forces in the world that would love to see the United States not be a superpower and maybe they're right, wrong, or indifferent, but I think that we are allowing ourselves to be torn apart, and we're encouraging the tearing of each other apart. And I think that that's the danger, is that we don't, we aren't taking a personal responsibility one at a time to be kind or intelligent. Yeah. How do you, I mean, how do you change that? Um, I think that you, those types of changes I mean, the, the kind of, you're talking about character adjustments. Now you're talking about global character adjustments of large swaths of people to get them united. And unfortunately, it has always taken massive tragedy to do that. Mm. Um, I, I remember uh, what life was like the week before 9-11 in our culture. And I remember what life was like a week after 
9-11 in our culture. And it was a terrible tragedy, but it was also extremely, an extremely unifying moment. Right. And I, I think that, um, unfortunately, yeah, it takes a lot of Red Cross moments to bring people together and go, what's really important? Um, and unfortunately, I think the disparities that we have are, it's kind of like, we kind of have a street fight politically or sociologically in, in the street every day, whether no matter what news station you tend to get your information from. And you feel compelled to go out into the street and pick one of the two sides that you want to win. And I think that buying into that to begin with is problematic. Uh, I don't, uh, one of my favorite things that anybody ever said about politics was, was Prince, the musician who I absolutely adored when the, uh, one of the last elections came around and he was still alive, someone asked him what his view was. And I mean, it was no secret. He was a Jehovah's witness and he didn't, um, uh, he was not really politically active. And he said, he simply said, ain't got no dog in that hunt. <laughs> and I, <laughs> and it's like, there's so much wisdom in that. Cause if you really step back, you probably really don't have a dog in this hunt. And you realize too, how much time and energy that can suck from your life and kind of be a black hole of wasted, wasted time that you could put towards something that is much more creative and effective to have a much more positive effect on people. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's right. I mean, I mean, I don't want to get too, too religious on anybody. Cause I mean, and I don't, uh, I'm not personally myself. I'm not like, I'm, I'm here, sitting here talking to you on 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. I'm not in church, but at the same time, uh, if you're made in God's image, that doesn't mean you were made to rule over anything. God creates stuff. That's all. Just go create some stuff. Yeah. Quit complaining about what's, <laughs> what's around you. Just go create some, something. That's what you're here for. So a couple questions and we'll wrap up Ron. Along this topic of major influencers and using that influence, we see how influencers use this power to do great things and sometimes not so great things. So understanding this power, how do you use this influence to build business and make sure that you're still having a, a positive effect on the world? Wow, that's a big question. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm smart enough to do that. I'm just, I kind of get up every morning and kind of skate my lane. I just try to be me and try to, you know, I, I spend time with um, people who I think that on the, the people think of things in hierarchies and pecking orders. And uh, like they think of the, their company as a pyramid and they're at the top of the pyramid and everybody's beneath them. I kind of think of the world the other way, that it's more like a pinball machine. The pyramid's inverted and it starts with customers and then your customer service people and it kind of funnels down to you and whatever balls somebody else doesn't get, I get. So I'm the paddle at the bottom instead of the king at the top. Mm -hmm. I think that's a healthy way to look at business. So there's people that I mentor and I think you'd say, oh, that they must know less than you. No, I mentor young people and, and, and business people because I've just screwed up more times. I've just made so many mistakes and I've, done, I've been through 300 launches. So I've learned just so much through the case studies of that, that I have information that's useful to people. Yeah. Um, but in the process of doing that, I get a lot. They t I mean, I've learned so much about so many things from the people I mentor that's again, constantly like, uh, you know, if Isaac Newton got hit in the head with an apple, man, there's a whole tree of apples that fall on me all the time. I'm constantly getting <laughs> awakened. <laughs> Who are some of your mentors that you look up to, Ron? Um, early on, I had some guys in the grocery business, actually, that taught me the fundamentals of P&Ls and, and uh, business elements of actually how to run a business financially from a financial standpoint that um, I'll never forget because I, I just wouldn't have any of the other skill sets without that. I couldn't be in business with those skill sets. And um, uh, a lot of those guys were, were ex guys from Albertsons. There's a couple guys from the Pacific Northwest, um, Carl LaForce and Mike Hills, guys that were in the grocery business that really helped me in business. Filmmakers um, early on. And today um, I, I, I'm lucky enough to be involved with uh, Guthy Ranker, and there's probably five or six people inside of their their organization, including Bill Guthy and Greg Ranker and Rick Odom and um, the, the finance team and the legal team um, that are super helpful. Um, and I learn stuff every day, just perspective. Um, 
hanging around people that have had massive, massive billion dollar successes, um, they can kind of cut through the BS real quick. Um, and I think all of us are really good at convincing ourselves that we need to do this or we need to do that. Like this is, oh, I've got a great idea. Well, don't worry. It may not be a great idea. It's kind of like saying I got a funny joke. Tell the joke. I'll tell you whether it's funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if, I, if all of my ideas are good ideas, but I know I'm going to have other ideas. And, and that's one of the things I, I like to kind of impart on young people in businesses. Ideas will keep coming as long as you keep the pipeline open and keep pedaling and learning and working. It's going to be just fine. Be focused more on who you are in the world instead of what the world might be thinking of you. Yeah, I think that's incredible advice and a great way to wrap up the podcast. Ron, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing your tips and tricks and all your wisdom with us. If the listeners want to reach out and learn more about what you have going on, where's the best place they could do that at? You know, I do have something that I think that people will find useful that I'd be happy to give. Um, and this is kind of a, a for people starting out a business. Um, you can just email me at uh, Ron at Big Baby Agency and just put in the subject line Kickstarter. I, I've launched three Kickstarters in the last two years and I u- implemented all of the techniques that I've learned over the years in, in direct response advertising and have um, we're 100% success, successful in Kickstarters. We've never done one that hasn't worked. But we have a 26-point checklist, literally an A to Z checklist of things that you need to do if you're thinking of launching your own product. And it's applicable not only to Kickstarter, but to, to anybody launching a, any type of business that utilizes the internet or online businesses. So I'd be happy to give that, that article. It's about, I don't know, it's about 15 pages, case studies up front, and then the checklist is at the end. And I'd be happy to give that to anybody who's listening and just... Email me again at ron at bigbabyagency.com and put the word Kickstarter in the subject line and I'll reply with that article. I love the name of your company and thanks again so much for joining the show. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you more. Chris, absolutely my pleasure and I cannot wait to see you guys in person again and give you a big hug. Thank you for the honor of being here. I hope it's useful for folks. Have a great day. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. And listeners, we're going to wrap up there. Thank you guys for joining in once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our five, six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.